Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, episode 182, March 26, 2021. I'm Salmon and I'm here with Mark. How are you, Mark? Um, what uh, did you say? I'm Salmon. I'm Salmon. And as I think I made a bit of a mistake, I, I decided to change my name to Salmon um, in regard to the, the promotion that's going on in Taiwan. Have you heard about this? I haven't heard anything about it at all. Well, they're not happy in Taiwan. Ta- Taiwanese official, officials have issued a plea for people to stop changing their name to Salmon. <laughs> yes, I After have. dozens have made the unusual move to take advantage of a restaurant promotion, Mark. Um, so I'm already getting into a news story at the moment. Uh, and what basically happened is it was a two-day promotion and any customer that had a card on there that contained the Chinese characters for Salmon would be entitled to an all-you-can-eat meal with five friends, Mark, and and people went a bit crazy with that. And apparently it's either four or five times you're allowed to change your name in Taiwan. So people are changing their name for that period and um, spending, um, getting hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of, of dollars worth of free free meals with their friends and then changing their name back again. So there you go. And um, some of the um, names that they changed were hilarious. One was Explosive Good Looking Salmon. I think that's what you would have it as, Mark. Um, Salmon Prince, Meteor Salmon King, and my favourite, Mark, Salmon Fried Rice. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. Um, So I... um, I think I made a mistake changing my name to Salmon because I don't know how many times we can change it back, back here, here in Australia, Mark. I might be known as the Salmon King for, or the Salmon Fried Rice for for many weeks or for many years until the end of my days perhaps. So anyway, so there you go. There's a, a quite a quirky news story there. The, the things people will do to get a free, free feed. I'm, I'm amazed what <laughs> when I did hear that story, I, I was just gobsmacked that people would go that far. For, the food must be outstanding. We'd hope so. Um, well, certainly free. Yes. So vetgurus.com, vetgurus.com, Gmail, vetgurus at gmail.com and our lovely sponsors, Chemical Essentials, Specialised Animal Nutrition, Microchips Australia, and we'll announce something exciting about our 200th episode. Our sponsors have, have, have kicked in, Mark. They've more than kicked in. We won't talk about what they're what they're doing, but they've um, they've surpassed themselves, haven't they? They're outstanding sponsors, Brendan. We couldn't have hit on a better group of sponsors, I don't reckon. And the the, the swag, the pack of, of of product that people will get, it will be oh, gee. I think I might put my name in there under uh, under Salmon. Salmon. If if Salmon wins the prize, then I might sneakily um, acquire some of the the swag, Mark, that um, that people will get. So more about that. We might start announcing the competition around about episode 190. So so wait and see, and that will be available to everybody who's a, a subscriber. That's all you need to be, a subscriber. It's that simple. What have you been up to? Anything else, Mark? I hear that it's been a little tad wet in your region of the world. And for our overseas listeners, do you want to sort of talk about what's been happening up in the coastal areas of eastern and northeastern Australia? 
For sure, Brendan. We, we, as uh, we often refer to, we're on the east coast of Australia, about a couple of hundred clicks north of, 160 clicks north of um, Sydney, about a thousand from your house, I think, a thousand kilometres from your house up the coast. And um, our whole part of the coast, and from you know, pretty where, pretty much everywhere in New South Wales up into southern Queensland, we've had a, what do they call them, rain bombs um, that's been dumping, um, well, I think we ended up with about half a metre, 400, 400 millimetres of rain over the past week. Several days um, had more than 100 millimetres. And we've been pretty lucky in that we've had some pretty extensive puddles but we've had no major damaging floods but unfortunately only very short distances north of us um that's not been the case and some of our staff um went away to uh, a local veterinary conference at coffs harbour and got um flooded in they couldn't get out um so it's been a little bit of a um I, uh, you know, we have had to be a little bit flexible at the beginning of this week to make sure that we could um, uh, get everyone to work and get everything done um, and cope without those uh, staff members that were either stuck at home or stuck in Coffs Harbour. And you did send me a picture, didn't you, of a um, somebody in their front yard or um on the um, on the canoes or the kayaks and just having a good time. That was one of your staff your receptionists. That's right. Your, your staff, yes. Um, so you need to make the most of it. So you didn't have anybody um, coming up to a, a, a paddle through um, consultation <laughs> clinic. We, we we did think at some point we were going to have to uh, get the kayaks out and do a bit of a instead of curbside um, maybe gutter side consult. Um, so, but uh, pontoon, put a pontoon there, and yeah, uh, but we've yes. but we've been good. It's all been we've we've been very lucky, and um, and we've been able to cope without excessive inundation. Good to hear, Mark. Good to hear. Now, I think you wanted to jump straight into a speaking of water, a bit of a fishy story that you had for us i do this is an interesting story about a study that's been done by scientists from james cook university who've used genetic testing to make a little bit of a an assessment about whether um small individuals small individual fish in a population are better um are more successful at reproduction than the large fish so it's long been known that larger fish produce more eggs i mean you know it's intuitive but um it's long been thought that because they do produce more eggs that they contribute more fish to the next generation and therefore um, you know they're more reproductively successful, and um, and these studies demonstrated that um, that to be entirely true. That the larger fish were four times more likely to contribute um, uh, fish to the population, but the problem is new the, the the one of those larger fish is four times more likely than one of the smaller fish to contribute. Uh, uh, offspring to the next generation. But it's not a one-to-one ratio, Brendan. The larger fish are much, much rarer, which means that smaller fish 
uh, smaller individual fish in, end up contributing um, a significantly larger proportion of the population of the next generation. This is really important um, because it validates a lot of current fishing practices, um, which sets size limits um, for both recreational and commercial fishing. Um, and uh, and it's interesting that um, simply using minimum size limits is quite an effective way of protecting um, these smaller but more abundant fish. Um, this particular species they studied, the coral trout, um, is a, a commercially and recreationally significant species. Um, and it is just interesting that... Uh, um, that uh, that DNA genetic analyses um, can show that um, these policies, size limits, no take zones are another really important uh, contributor to the population, maintaining the population, um, and also making sure that uh, the population maintains a genetic variability. So interesting study, Brendan. So it's good to be a small fish in a big ocean, is it, Mark? Um, it makes me feel good. That. <laughs> it makes me feel good. Um, but then I might get eaten um, once I, once you, you get a bit bigger. So don't get too big, Mark. Don't get a big head or else the um, – well, yeah, I'll stop there. I'll stop there. <laughs> did you – when we were when, when we were in uh, – um, we did some diving in Fiji and we went to a uh, particular part of Fiji where uh, uh, on Tavuni Island where they had actually set up a marine reserve um, and the local uh, Indigenous Fijians who live there had, um, had done considerably better uh, fishing in the local waters once that marine reserve was set up because it uh, provided a you know a focus for reproductively active animals which uh, you know they spread out from there and they were able to to harvest them so um, it's interesting to see the same principles operating in many tropical locations Yes, you've tied it together beautifully there, Mark. Well done. Well I was done. just trying to cut you off so you didn't go down <laughs> the pathway you were going. Yes. Well, my new story is, is a bit of fluff, Mark, a bit of fluff. It's about platypus and researchers, they must have another boring day at the office, Mark, and they pulled out the UV light and they shone it on to a dead platypus that was in a drawer and guess what? It fluoresced, Mark. Does it glow? I think we need to write a book, Mark, because we, there's a bit of a theme with this. Instead of does it fart, um, does it glow? We need to um, go through all these different animals that fluoresce. And, well, I'm not surprised. I, I mean, they're, they're, they're getting a little bit um, concerned that they can't work out why these animals fluoresce, Mark. Um, is it... Is it to attract mates? Is it to defend themselves? Is it to hide? Is it to be seen or not to be seen? Um, or is it just the way the the way the light um, refracts refracts and, and, and works and and, and um, shines back um, in that UV sort of spectrum, Mark? Um, and guess what? Maybe it doesn't mean much at all, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> What's your thoughts on this about this this bit about fluorescence? And and let me tell you a little story. I want to hear your story. A, a, a long time ago, I was in um, in a um, in a country called the US of A, Mark, um, and I went to visit a a reptile veterinarian called Frederick Fry. 
Um, yeah, we all know Frederick. The, um, Frederick yes. was the original author of um, uh, the, the te- yeah the, the reptile yeah. te- textbook that he had. Yeah, so Fred Fry is a bit of an eccentric character, old Fred, and he took me to his house and he said, let me show you my invertebrate collection. I was getting a bit worried when he said that. And he headed down into the basement. <laughs> And he had um, an amazing scorpions. Co- co- yes, he had amazing collection, not just scorpions, but all sorts of you know um, um, megalomorphs and all sorts of um, invertebrates and spiders and, and all sorts. And then he he whipped out a UV light mark, and then he started um, shining it over all of these animals that he had in his collection. And he said, "Look at this! I just discovered that these um, fluoresce and." I've no idea why it happens, and I've contacted all my colleagues in the zoology department, and they have no idea, and they didn't realise they fluoresce. But it's that inquiring mind, isn't it, Mark? Um, that you think, you know, why would you um, shine something on on these animals to see if they fluoresce, and then think, gee, why why is that happening? And then go down the little the rabbit hole about um, why that might be occurring with them. Um, so yeah, that's my little story, Mark. Um, that's probably Excellent. wasted two, two two minutes of your life there, but um, there you go. I, I'm, uh, so why do you why do you think they fluoresce? Well, I, I think I've said to you before that um, the the we've this is we've had wombats, we've had some macropods, and now we've got platypus. Um, all these animals that have been identified to grow glow blue green are. Um, are animals that are not in the wild besides that um, chance sighting of the fluorescent flying squirrel in the wild. Um, I wonder whether these dead animals have a little um, crop of um, of dermatophytes <laughs> growing on their um, keratin and and that they actually are fluorescing because they have a nice crop of... Um, of uh, microsporum or one of the uh, the other lovely ringworm, so they're induced- not preserved well, is what you're saying. I'm suspicious. They I'm very them. suspicious. Yes. Um, well, let's let's one let the- us. I have taken two. This is <laughs> this this is funny because um, I have a wonderful client who's uh, has a. Um, uh, one of the, what's the parrot from Western Australia that likes the managum? I'll think of their name in a minute. Red cat parrots. Um, and he shone, he sh- showed me some wonderful photos of his parrot after he shone a woods lamp, an ultraviolet light onto it. And they have a completely different pattern. So I think in birds, it's a reasonable reasonably well accepted thing that their range of vision extends into you know well beyond ours into the ultraviolet and they do have a different pattern and it and, and has social significance i don't know whether these mammals do though brendan or not, but i am going to pull the woods lamp out and shine it on pretty much everything i can that's alive um and see if there's you know nice patterns or whether they're just random lumps of green stuff yes well i'm not surprised you you'll be doing that because i've seen you at the nightclub mark and you certainly have random patterns in those uv lights when when you're on the dance floor so yes so yes that's my story there mark it's not much of a story but it's a um well according to you it's a it's a musty moldy ringworm (laughs) platypus um story but um 
yes, more to come. But I, I think it's something that, gee, it's such an easy thing to do, isn't it? Shine that UV light on those animals. So next platypus I see, Mark, I'll be putting that UV light on it. Well, let's jump into our main story or our main topic. <laughs> and it's one that we've sort of covered this a little bit before, but it was probably way back in the in the time machine, way before episode 100 or so, but we haven't covered it on its own. And that's lumps in snakes. And it's a pretty big topic, isn't it? Um, so I think we should just go over the basics of it and talk about some of the common causes of it and the basic workup of these cases for those vets and nurses, technicians who are not seeing these animals very often and they're presented with a lumpy, bumpy snake mark. And um, there's a good shout-out to it at, 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 at an Australian vet, a good good friend of mine and, and yours too, who's um, who's one of those inquiring mind people, um, aren't they? And that's um, Dr. Helen McCracken um, here in, in Melbourne who developed a particular um, process of... Um, determining the organs and the and anatomical structures of snakes, didn't she, Mark? It's an excellent system too, Brendan, and uh, one that I literally use on almost a daily basis, um, establishing the, the, uh, the ratio between the length from the tip of the snout to the lump divided by the length, the snout vent length. Um, it's been an exceedingly useful tool and uh, Helen's tables have been a considerable contribution to speeding up um, that diagnostic process when it comes to identifying lumps. Yes, and basically the process is, yeah, you do exactly what you mentioned there. You measure the the tip of the snout to the um, backside, the cloacal region, and then you measure from the tip of the snout to the lump, and then you look up the charts, charts based on the, the, the species, and they've worked doubt for most of the common species but um, generally applies to most most snakes because they are very linear with their with their anatomical structures there so for instance if it's 0.25 or 25 percent of the distance from the snout to the back end mark what may you find around there i'm usually finding in most pythons just between 22 and 25 percent we have the heart yes exactly so if you have a have a lump sitting around that percentage of distance then we think is it in the gut or is it the heart so do we have a cardiomegaly there so i've already jumped into one of the possible causes of these lumps in snakes so let's jump back backwards <laughs> mark back in time and we'll we'll talk about how common these are as far as presentations in in practice and it's certainly not not rare at all. In fact, I would be saying it is common, a common presentation with, with um, snakes, especially the pythons, is my snake has a lump and it is not going away. In fact, it may be getting bigger and it has been there for several days or several weeks or several months. And I've even seen somewhere it's been almost a year or so. Um, and that's why they bring that snake into me to determine what's happening there. So what's our first step, Mark? Well, our first step um, is, and as I said, I, I, like you, I'm literally, we see snakes every day and I would be um, uh, following these steps pretty much um, every day as we get one of these cases in. Um, so our first step is to, you know, get a history, as you've highlighted, the duration since it's appeared, um, then to um, uh 
that as part of that history, some of the husbandry care, some of the uh, time since the last meal, those sorts of bits of information are going to be helpful. Um, but then the interesting, this is one of those interesting diagnostic pathways in that getting the measurements and referring to Dr. McCracken's tables, um, it guides your next steps in the workup. So um, if you, for example, were to uh, get a python and, and have something come in at about um, 40% of the snout vent length, um, 0.40 on that ratio, then then as you know, there's uh, the esophagus going past, but um, a large part of the coelom at that point is uh, is filled with the liver. And so you are going to be thinking probably of maybe some form of fine needle aspirate. If we were at that 22 to 25% the level where the heart is, you might be more tempted to whack the ultrasound probe on and, and see if you can. It's very common in our hands to have um, infections that uh, that fill the pericardium with fluid and purulent material and, and we end up with a dilated uh, pericardium that appears as a lump at that point. But obviously the ultrasound will show that flocculent fluid around the heart up quite neatly. So your next step often depends on that measurement is, would be the first thing that I'd get done, Brendan. Yes, and I suppose one of the most common reasons that we get a lumpy or bumpy snake, especially towards the back end of the snake, is is feces, isn't it, Mark? So um, it's it's pretty damn common that we'll get um, an obstipation, constipation going on there. And I think part of that clinical examination um after we've determined that history and done those measurements and then worked out that, hey, this is close to this particular organ, um, so it may be involving this particular organ and or the gastrointestinal tract, um, then I poke it, Mark. I poke <laughs> it. Don't be afraid of poking it. Prod it. Touch it. Palpate it. it, yes. Palpate it. Belot it. Uh, but don't touch it. Don't feel it. Don't don't do the because the temptation, of course, particularly for those um, obstipation snakes, um, is to do a little bit of toothpaste work. Just squeeze it along a little bit because it's so close to the vent. And and if I can just get this out, everything will be good. Um, the, using the toothpaste technique on its own without some considerable preparation could well cause some serious damage, Brendan. Yes, we have to be careful there. But it does tell you a lot by, by palpating it about um, how it feels. Is it soft? Is it firm? Um, is it lumpy or bumpy? Is it consistent, um, the, the, the feel of that um, mass there? Um, we don't particularly worry um, ourselves with the possibility of it being hot or cold, do we, um, in a snake, um, similar to what we would be thinking about a, 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 a subcutaneous lump in a dog or a cat. We're not sort of feeling for those abscess-tight swellings there, are we, Mark? Um, we don't tend to um, um, determine that, hey, gee, this one's particularly cold, this lump, or this lump's particularly hot. Um, it's more so that, hey, the whole snake's cold because they didn't keep it warm on the way to the <laughs> clinic. But it, so is, it is, it's an important point to make that we still are looking for abscesses. They're one of the most common sources of lumps, um, but they don't have that, uh, um, you know, the, the 
mammalian hallmarks of inflammation, um, you know, that chronic inflammation that's associated with reptile abscesses um, does mean that you can't detect that change in temperature. Yes. Well, let's talk about the treatment of one of these marks. Say if you can, you're fairly certain we have faeces that are just a little bit impacted in there and, and you, you gently palpate and you can feel some um, what you might think some um, rough rough sort of um, structures there and, and probably some urates as well and perhaps some dried out um, fecal matter there. What's your, what's your recommendation? What do you tell the clients? What do I tell them? I tell them that they need to admit them to hospital um, for us to... Uh, in this case, at this problem, I can see what you're headed towards. It depends a little bit on the degree of severity, but we generally would be admitting them. They need to be often these animals that are obstipated, particularly the ones that have uh, maybe a urate lith blocking them up, and they need to be hydrated, Brendan. They're often relatively dehydrated animals. So getting them rehydrated and then considering a sh some analgesia um, because there is often some spasm and pain associated with these masses in the terminal part of the digestive system. And then maybe even a short anaesthetic and the installation of some uh, lubricant um, to allow the the, uh, the the these when I look at these um, these masses, they almost dry out. There's mucus lubricating them as the fecal pellet passes down, and if the animal is a bit dehydrated or inert, and so the mass sits in one spot for a while, they get glued to the wall of the colon, um, and so moistening that mucus and allowing the glue to become slippery again rather than sticking to the wall of the digestive tract facilitates the snake feeling more comfortable um, and once the snake starts moving around they'll often pass those uh, um, obstructing fecal and urate pellets. So at what point do you decide to admit them or to decide that hey this one it's probably a little bit overdue for, for defecating. Um, it perhaps feels a little bit firmer than I'd expect feces to feel in that snake. What? How do you decide whether to just send that animal home and say, look, do some warm water baths at home with your snake every day or two or three or four, and there's a pretty good chance that it will pass those feces after just doing basic basic water baths at home. How do you make that decision? Uh, probably the the most important thing for me is the degree of um, backfill. Um, if I've got a snake that simply has a, um, a fecal pellet, maybe coupled with some urates, and there's no... Um, nothing else behind it um, and the snake is otherwise doing its normal thing, then then getting them to have a swim, um, they obviously uh, drink some of that water while they're in there, but the motion is most important, the physical movement of swimming. Um, then, um, then those are the snakes I probably would send home with a little bit of you know, if this doesn't get better in short order, if we don't have a fecal pellet in a week, then come back to me. But as soon as they have that um, little sense, and your poke is a good recommendation here, because as you're poking the some of these snakes, you'll get a little bit of a, 
water bag, a, a um, you know, a, a um, balloon, a water bomb, a balloon full of water sensation as you poke just a, you know, above the the harder fecal pellet. Once that uh, there's some backfill, once it's backed up, I get much much more aggressive, um, and we will be hydrating that snake, giving it some pain relief, and trying to get that out as quickly as we can. Yes. And don't you just love the ones where you <laughs> you get the snake out of the um, bag and you st- it's stressed out a little bit because you've got it out of the bag and then it it, it lets go <laughs> it lets go um, and you just uh, you send them out to the reception desk and say thank you very much um, here's your bill um, problem fixed <laughs> and and the key thing one I find this one of the uh, the the great ways to if a vet comes to us and says they have some experience with snakes, if they do one of these consults and uh, there's an extensive spray, as there often is, um, and it's not on any of their clothes, you can believe they're an experienced reptile vet. But uh, uh, I don't know if they end up like me wearing most of the expressed stool, they might have some work to do before we call them experienced, Brendan. Yes, and as I've said before, my dear wife Annie always knows if I've been seeing snakes um, because you have that that snaky smell, don't you, Um, for several days, Um, not just if you've been defecated on by the snake, but uh, yes. So faeces ingester, um, abscesses. Now, you mentioned abscesses, Mark. Yes, I certainly see a lot of these lumpy snakes that are soft tissue abscesses, and one of the classic sites that I tend to see the abscesses is, is that the, the little narrow in there, Mark, where the esophagus gets into that um, stomach region there. So we end up doing our measurements there, and we say, gee, it's pretty close to where the where the stomach is there. And um, my theory with these ones are that it was a, a food item that, either went down the wrong way or, or perhaps they fed a slightly larger item than they needed to and we had a bit of a bit of a an abrasion to the to the to the um gutters that got to that stomach region the distal esophagus and and where that 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 is um where the heart is there as well isn't it mark where it sort of narrows down as it's going past the heart and then we we develop an abscess there and i'll tell you what these ones are hard to treat, aren't they? Oh, they're so hard to treat. And particularly, there's many other abscesses that you can reasonably, even intracellomic ones that you can reasonably contemplate surgically excising and, and curing the problem. But those ones associated with the distal esophagus, one of the common locations that we see them as well, um, they're horrible. Um, and it's very well, I can't even tell you that I've had great success um, surgicalizing those those cases. If we get them in that sort of location and they're big enough to change the shape of the body, um, we're having a very serious talk about where we go from there. I agree. The vast majority of them that I see these days, I, I usually recommend euthanasia with them and say it's not worth going there. Um, and we did, I did sort of briefly mention one of the other swellings around that area and that is a cardiomegaly so the i think this is a differential that people may not consider if they're not seeing many reptiles in that we we're we're diagnosed we certainly see cardiac disease in reptiles and snakes um and unfortunately it's often when they're decompensated when they're brought to the clinic because the client sees this swelling and it's that that heart that's finally decompensated over over days, weeks, or months, um, and it's developed a, 
a, a um, cardiomegaly there, Mark, um, and they're pretty dramatic, aren't they? They're pretty. They they are pretty spectacular, and they probably. Um, well, I don't know what your theory with them is, Brendan, but I've got a little bit of a feeling that they are uh, um, an incubation problem. That uh, during the developmental stages of incubation, that there's some issue maybe with the heat or humidity. That um, because I often find uh, that uh, several members of a clutch will will succumb to these heart diseases, um, and so. But it is a uh, they they can be you know they look like they've uh, um, swallowed some quite large ball um, that's gotten to the that twenty five percent of their body length and sat there, and you can often like clearly see the beating the the heart beating through that uh, ventral abdominal wall. Yes, and they're well. They're, I find them fun to deal with. Um, not particularly <laughs> fun for the um for the snake, unfortunately, because of the um progression of the cardiac disease and the the difficulty and challenges of of, of medicating them and, and response or lack thereof to to medication regardless of the type of cardiac disease. Um but I certainly see adult ones as well, Mark, that have developed, you know, cardiomegaly later in life and um I'm suspicious of the sort of classic sort of cardiac disease processes that might be going on with those ones as well. What about cancers, Mark? Do you see many neoplastic lumps in snakes? It seems to be, um, and I've I've got a little bit of a theory that particularly where I am in New South Wales, we've had I think for about a couple of decades now the the legislation uh, that allows you to keep reptiles as um you know it's a uh, before that, you weren't allowed to keep them. So there was a big burst of people um, acquiring these animals as the legislation changed and the ability to own them was legalised. A lot of those animals, you know, that were acquired in the first five or ten years of after, um, you know, we didn't see a lot of cancers over that time because they were all young animals. But now um, it is a big part of our practice to identify um, a surprising array of um, of cancers. And we do, you know, uh, whack the ultrasound probe on those unusual organs or uh, take a fine needle aspirate. We do get a, um, a significant number. They probably a higher proportion of adenocarcinomas, more serious cancers. Yes. Um, and um, but yeah, they, it's always like you. It, it's not much fun for the snake, but they're interesting cases to diagnose. And the ones that you can find a, a benign uh, growth for, and that you can consider um, surgical excision, they're they're uh, very gratifying cases to work with. And, Mark, do you see many that you have those, especially the adenocarcinomas in the stomach sort of region, that are a combination of a huge abscess and a, and a neoplasm there? And I always think, is it a chicken or the egg type thing? You know, did it form an abscess first and then develop into cancer structure or vice versa with them? Do you see those sort of pretty, in you know, in... Um, in yeah, neoplastic ones sort of. Yep, we definitely see, um, uh, and they're they're a little bit um, different from the abscess sort of appearance that you were describing for. They before they often occur sort of more in the the body of the stomach um, and uh, more distally, and um, and they are like you cut them out, and they're 
ang- at post-mortem often, and they're angry, lobulated, um, disorganized things with uh, extensive areas of necrosis and abscess. And and I'm like you, I, I, I sometimes imagine that there's an an abscess that becomes has is surrounded by reactive tissue, and some of that gets set off into uh, cancer, neoplastic change. And then other times, I think, oh, this is clearly um, a primary cancer that's had some necrotic tissue that's gotten secondarily infected. But it's a bit of a chicken and egg, and probably a case by case thing, Brendan. Yes, yes. Okay, so speaking of chicken and eggs, Mark, I think one of the things we need to check with the history is do we have a a female snake there or do we have a male? Because if we have a male snake, then we can eliminate one of the other causes of lumps or bumps, and that is what, Mark? Well, follicles and eggs, Brendan. The um, And the, it's a uh, – I was just going to quickly point out that the gonads are another location that, you know, you were talking about the stomach, um, the tortuous vessels of the – the gonads, which facilitate the rapid seasonal change in size, um, they do seem to be a location where t- turbulent blood flow will allow uh, bacteremic uh, samples to bounce onto the walls and set up infection. So abscesses at the gonads are a problem. Uh, but the, as you point out, the um, lumps and bumps at the level of the ovary or down in the uh, uh, more distally in the oviducts, um, they may well be normal. Uh, they may well be over, about to be um, uh, um, follicles about to be ovulated or over within the oviduct. Yes, yes. What else do we have, Mark? Oh, we sort of mentioned one of the ones which isn't particularly a soft tissue one. Well, it isn't a soft tissue one, and we've covered that elsewhere, and that's the spinal osteopathy, osteoarthritis condition, which we spoke about in a recent a recent um, podcast. Um, so we won't, won't cover that one anymore, Mark. What sort of other lumps and bumps would you put on the differential, apart from the weird and wonderful ones um, that you are seeing in these lumpy snakes? I think we've covered them all, Brendan, and it is interesting that you uh, you point out the um, uh, the, the um, spinal, spinal osteopathy. They do, you know, really present, in my experience, a little bit differently. Most of these snakes that have the routine lumps that are maybe – they might be in the muscle wall or the bones um, uh, of the body wall, but most of the time we find them in the coelom, uh, and um, and that sort of a dis- it's fairly distinct. Um, and often there's a limited restriction of movement, whereas those spinal osteopathy animals are. You know, some, it's like someone has broken a whole section of their back, and they do tend to move completely differently. Yes, we, we, and the only the only the only other comment I make about um, pseudo lumps and bumps, Mark, in snakes, which is the snake that has neurological issues um, or a flaccid snake, and so structures that previously wouldn't be um, tight or loose that are um, vice versa. Um, so you get a snake that's a little bit lumpy according to the owner and it was it's one that just has neurological um, disease and spinal issues, etc. So um, do you see that, Mark? Definitely. And that, uh, you know, that whole relaxed segment of the coelom um, is, uh, you know, an added bell ringer 
um, for us when people come in and and then we often lay that snake on the ground and notice the segment that's um that's dilated or flaccid um, and then we can see once the snake's on the ground that it's not moving normally and um and it comes back to I think your poke and prod technique I think even when you don't have a snake that has a lump I think it's an excellent thing to do to get in the habit of really you know, trying to um, slide your fingers uh, into the sealum almost to gently get the um, those uh, ventral scales, the broad ventral scales in the pythons to uh, dorsiflex so that you can get your finger in and feel the different textures, particularly in healthy snakes, so that when there is a lump um, that you can sort of formulate a bit of an opinion about whether the consistency, the firmness, the shape, the, the, uh, um, uh, the whether it's fluid-filled or not, whether you think that might be normal for that uh, location in the body or whether it stands out as different because you've felt it before, Brendan. Absolutely. Determine the normal before you can determine the abnormal. And um, I think that's just about it for our little overview of lumps and bumps in snakes. And we might cover some of those specific conditions in a future podcast, Mark. Um, perhaps number 500 and 63. I expect it will be around about that time because we've got a long list of topics, don't we? Um, do you want to say anything before we close, Mark? Well, just while we're talking about topics, anyone who has a, a question or a, a um, an idea or a thought for a direction we might um, investigate, um, a topic that we might talk about, drop us a line. Brendan's always keen for those emails. And I did notice, Mark, a, a picture of you in a um, magazine. Um, vet, what was it called, the magazine? Veterinary Practice. Yes, and there was an article about podcasting, and we were fortunate enough to have a have a little blurb about us in there. So for those of you in Australasia, may be able to see that. Um, in fact, I think I can link to the actual article um, in the show notes. So um, our listeners could go to vetgurus.com and click on that link. And um, the scary thing is I'll be able to see a bit of a photo of us um, in Venice, I think, Mark, wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> From a few years ago. So um, that's something to have a bit of a laugh at. And Mr. Outro Man is here, so we will bid you all goodbye to next week and don't forget to send emails at gurus.gmail.com. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.